0: Listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrd. Tonight, it's 10 years tomorrow since a runaway train towing 72 tanker cars of crude derailed and caused a massive explosion that devastated the Quebec town of Lac Megantic. Forty-seven people were killed. The oldest, 93, the youngest, just four. What was it like to be there in the immediate aftermath of that tragedy, and then to return to the community in the days, months, and years that followed? Global National's Mike Armstrong shares his memories. And what is the legacy of that day? Have the necessary safety improvements been made? And could it happen again? The chair of the Transportation Safety Board shares her thoughts. And a self-professed policy wonk in Ottawa discovered soon after the tragedy that he had a personal connection to what happened in Lac-Mégantic and then spent years trying to dig into what went wrong at so many levels and looks into that enduring question, what went wrong And has it been fixed? But first, Ontario Provincial Police have cracked a near 50-year-old mystery. The body of a woman was found in a river near the main highway between Ottawa and Montreal in a town called Castleman in May of 1975. For decades, she was simply known as the Nation River Lady. Now, thanks to genetic genealogy, she has been identified as a 47-year-old businesswoman from Tennessee who had just been visiting Montreal. She had no connection. Canada, really, and an arrest has been made for her murder as well. An 81 year old in Hollywood, Florida, who she knew. We find out how a non profit group helped piece together that genetic puzzle. We'll begin tonight with a cold case that is no longer cold. The OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police, say they have finally identified the remains of a woman found nearly 50 years ago through DNA technology and forensic genealogy. They've also laid charges against an 81-year-old American man in connection with the murder. Here is OPP Deputy Commissioner Marty Kearns.
1: In this case, we have always had faith knowing that determining who the Nation River Lady was would lead us to what happened. Today, we can announce we have provided a resolution to her family
2: and to the communities in Eastern Ontario that have lived with this unsolved investigation for over 47 years.
0: That's right, the case dates back to May of 1975 when someone discovered a woman's body in a river just south of the town of Castleman, Ontario, which if you've, if you've driven between Ottawa and Montreal, that's right along the main highway, uh, 417, about 55 kilometers southeast of the capital. Officially at Jane Doe, she became known as the Nation River Lady, named after the small river she'd been founded. And for five decades, nearly, despite many public appeals for information, that was about as much as was ever known. But behind the scenes, as technology advanced, so did the ability to extract clues about who she was and who could be responsible for her death. And it turns out, as was mentioned, the integral part of the mystery was that the victim, 48-year-old Jewel Langford, was not from the area. She wasn't from Canada at all. Instead, the Jackson, Mississippi, or Jackson, Tennessee, rather, businesswoman had traveled to Montreal the month before and never returned. So how did investigators piece together the puzzle. Well, a big part of that puzzle was down to a group known as the DNA Doe Project, a nonprofit uh, initiative that uses investigative gene- genetic genealogy to identify John and Jane Doe unidentified remains. Or, in the case, in this case, the mystery of the Nation River Lady. Margaret Press is the co-founder of the DNA Doe Project, and she joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight.
3: Um, thank you, Ben. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Tell me a bit about, about who you are and what exactly it is that you do.
3: So, the DNA Doe Project was founded, as you say, as a nonprofit, all volunteer organization back in 2017. We were the first organization in the world to be created with this mission in mind, which is to use genetic genealogy to identify these John and Jane Doe's, as you say, victims of homicide or natural death. And we were pioneers at the time because no one else was doing it that we knew of. And we managed to get a couple of agencies in the U.S. to trust us with the last little bit of extract or biological sample for their cases. And we were able to figure out what labs to use to process those samples so that we could use our genetic genealogy techniques on these cases.
0: Tell me a bit about this case. How did you get involved?
3: So the Ontario Provincial Police reached out to us in 2019, and they actually had already managed to get DNA extract from the remains of uh, the Jane Doe, Nation River Lady. So from that sample that we got from them, we had them send that to a lab that we use for whole genome sequencing here in the United States. The lab was called at the time um, Hudson Alpha Discovery. Hudson Alpha then processed that extract using whole genome sequencing, which is a technique to take that liquid DNA and create a huge data file that has entire genome from an individual in that data file. So every location on your genome is read multiple times. That file then goes to yet another the vendor or, or uh, a bioinformatics expert that we worked with at the time, and his job was to take that big, huge file and reduce it to a much smaller file that was something that we could compare with direct-to-consumer files that were uploaded to two databases that we're allowed to use.
0: In this case, I suppose one of the real challenges for investigators always was that um, the victim had no connection to where she was found. She wasn't from the community. She wasn't even from the country. So it was really reliant on someone, something like you to come along and try to figure out exactly who she was.
3: Exactly. So even if there were, say, a missing persons report. Uh, filed in the United States that would not have ever been on the radar in Canada. And similarly, if you did any media outreach up in Canada, asking people if they recognized the clay reconstruction, no one in the area may have remembered her because she probably had not been in that area for very long. So that certainly was the challenge from the investigation point of view. But once the file comes to us and we start to work with people who share DNA with our unknown, then where they came from and where they ended up is actually irrelevant to what we're looking at. We're looking at building family trees and trying to find genetically where this dough is going to fall.
0: Was there a a eureka moment in, in this one for you?
3: Well, the eureka moment for many of our cases is... Actually, could be a period of maybe a couple of hours where things start to fall into place fairly really quickly we We will work on these um, medium to distant DNA relatives that show up on our on the list of of what they call matches, but they're really not complete matches. they're the people who share DNA with our unknown we'll We'll work on each of those to try to figure out who they are, what their family trees look like. And when those trees start to link together and we're able to find a family line that we can build forward in time, looking for a missing second cousin or a missing relative at about that distance, then the eureka moment, as you said, starts to unfold fairly quickly, and the team gets very excited, excited. It looks like it's somebody from this grandparent's set or this parent set. let's see if, how many children this couple had. and we account for them all? Can we find one where there's no records online anywhere since 1975 in this case? That's what we call the proof of life search. And when that starts to fall into place, as I said, there's nothing on this woman, uh, on the, um, the woman that we found in the tree. Since 1975, the re- eureka moment starts to build very quickly. And then and then it's a very emotional time for the team. I
0: can imagine because really I understand that the family really had no idea what had happened. She disappeared on a trip to Montreal. They had no idea where she could be. They never connected the dots. Investigators didn't. The family never did between this particular uh, body found in 1975 on the outskirts, really somewhere kind of rural between Ottawa and Montreal and, and, our, and the victim herself, Jewel Langford. Um, what happens after that? I, I gather most of the, from that, investigators then take that, your information and then proceed to go and inform the family and so on and so forth.
3: That's correct. We feel it's not our place to talk directly to the family. In In a way, it's disrespectful because the family needs to hear it from somebody who's authorized to deliver that kind of news. So the the gravitas, if you will, the authority of a law enforcement agency, in this case the Ontario Pro- Provincial Police, would have been the one to reach out uh, to get somebody in the family to do confirmation testing. And in this case, because it crosses international borders, they would have had to work through a local agency in the United States or a possibly the fbi is what i'm hearing but that's 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 a story after our story so we don't really know all the details of how that confirmation was done but yes right. the, the notification of death needs to be done through the agency
1: years ago the words in memory of jewel p Langford, missing but not forgotten were inscribed on a memorial headstone and now we can all collectively family, friends, and strangers alike, be grateful that the word missing will be replaced on her headstone with the words, finally home and at peace.
0: That was retired OPP uh, Detective Constable Janice Mulcock today. She worked on this case. She since retired, but uh, we're talking tonight about the, uh, the the resolution of a very old cold case from Eastern Ontario uh, between Ottawa and Montreal. A place called Castleman, where a body was found back in 1975 in May. Forty eight year old Jewel Langford. Her identity remained a mystery for decades. Not only did they find her identity, they've also made an arrest at this point. Now this all kind of unfolded a few years ago and has been taking place ever since. Uh, there was some resolution last year, but we found out about it this week. Margaret Press is the co-founder of the DNA Doe Project. They were involved with identifying uh, the Jane Doe, in this case, the Nation River Lady, who we now know uh, was Jewel Langford of uh, Jackson, Tennessee. She had no connection to Canada or that area. She'd just been in Montreal for a visit. uh, Margaret, would you, in terms of the resolution of the case, did you have anything to do with with the identification of the of the suspect in this one, or is that really was your role really just to identify um, the, the Jane Doe, so to speak?
3: Our our job starts when that file is uploaded to the databases, and we can start working on those DNA relatives. And it ends really once we come up with the name of the Doe and turn that over to the agency. So no. We had nothing to do with the identification of the suspect at all, and and we right. we never do suspect work.
0: Right. We we've, we at this point in time, just so listeners know, the OPP hasn't said much about how that came about. They have arrested an eighty-one year old who is known to the victim, uh, but we don't know much in Florida. But we don't know much about exactly what the uh, investigation, how they got there. I, I assume we're going to find that out as time goes on. I was looking at your success uh, page uh and, and and it's pretty margaret There's like 87 i guess now 88 cases on there you've really brought a lot of answers to a lot of a lot of families out there over the last uh, six seven years
3: it's been extremely rewarding for us and for all of our volunteers as well each one of these is a separate story everybody's an individual and has a unique background and a family that's been missing them so once we find that answer for them and pass that along to the agency. It, there's enormous satisfaction for our volunteers who worked on those cases. Yes, we've probably identified or assisted in identification in over a hundred cases to date, where we're just not able to put them all on our website Yes, a lot of A lot of cases are still in the confirmation stage, the notification stage, or an open homicide investigation.
0: Certainly in this case with so much hinging on being able to identify the victim uh, is this a typical case or was this one a bit out of the ordinary for you
3: It was a bit out of the ordinary in the sense that there was a seemed to be um, a long wait I mean obviously um, agencies are are have to take all the time they they need in order to identify a suspect and so that can take years in this case it it certainly did But other than that, it was not too out of the ordinary. It took us about a month. I think cases typically will take between one and three months for us to find an identification. Sometimes they take much longer. And, of course, some of them we're still working on uh, until we come up with an answer, even if it takes years.
0: And your connection to this, I mean, I realize there's some technology, there's some detective work on your side as well, but just for you, how, what, what motivates you to continue to do this? It is a nonprofit. It is volunteers. Uh, you have done a lot of work. I imagine you're busy.
3: Yes, although I don't get to work, as personally, I don't get to work as much on the individual cases as I would love to. That was certainly my initial motivation. I think we all share, it's in our DNA, if you will, we all share an, an incredible love of solving puzzles, helping people, solving ge- genealogical puzzles in particular. We love the history that we learned, uh, working on family history, and often we've gotten our start with our own, our own families as well. But then m- most of us have been gravitated to helping friends Find their biological parents, or our own biological parents, in many cases. So it's a real uh, drive, if you will, a passion that is not only because of the puzzle solving that that really keeps us going, but also knowing that it's for an incredibly important cause.
0: Right, and and listening to uh, to the Ontario OPP retired detective constable there, it must it must bring it home that uh, that in this case you provided some answers for a family who'd waited near, nearly half a century for them
3: description of the headstone is such a, a an important metaphor for everything we do. Every one of our does, if they had a headstone, if they were a missing person, their family would have something similar, missing, not forgotten. And then once we provide an identification for them, they are sometimes, the remains are sometimes brought home and reburied. Um, and if not, headstones the names are, are added to a headstone or the dates are added. There's a whole metaphor in that that is about the answers that that family needs. They no longer are waiting for a phone call. They're no longer waiting for a knock on the door. They can begin the healing process even if it's a bittersweet moment and then it's not the answer they were looking for.
0: Well, Margaret Press, thank you so much for uh, your insight on this tonight. Much appreciated.
3: My pleasure. Thank you, Ben.
0: I distinctly remember where I was 10 years ago today, in South Africa, waiting outside the Pretoria Hospital where Nelson Mandela lay in critical but stable condition. The world's media had congregated there to see if the 94-year-old, one of the 20th century's great figures, would live and watching as the modern nation he helped create prepared for his possible death. In the early days of that summer, it felt as if the whole planet was focused on Pretoria. And then the next day, July 6th, Suddenly, it was horrific images of a home that were everywhere, a town that I'd actually been to before as a reporter about a decade earlier. The first reports were sketchy. A train had derailed in Lac-Mégantic, a town about 250 kilometers east of Montreal. There had been a massive explosion that had destroyed part of the town and that many were missing. Many were feared dead. My longtime global national colleague, Mike Armstrong, was one of the first reporters in Mégantic on that awful day.
2: This is a town very much still in shock, uh, with just about everyone here wondering how many people they know have been lost. One person we spoke to this morning summed it up. He said that uh, basically that train turned the downtown core into a crematorium. Mike Armstrong reporting 10 years
0: ago tomorrow. He would stay there for nearly two weeks and as the smoke cleared, the scale of the devastation and the scale of that tragedy became all too clear. 47 people had been killed, ranging in age from four to 93. 24 men, 23 women. Many of the victims had been gathered at a bar downtown called Music Cafe. Several others lived in the apartments nearby.
4: I was bicycling around those buildings,
2: playing around those buildings. I had friends living in those buildings. So all those memories now are just dust. And seeing the damage it did, uh, it's incredible. It's, it's, it's worse than in my worst nightmares.
0: A lac Antique resident 10 years ago, a series of failures that allowed an unattended train carrying 72 tankers full of crew to careen off the rails at over 100 kilometers an hour, bursting into flames in the heart of that community. As one survivor put it, there was a wall of flames. It was and remains the deadliest rail disaster in this country's history, not involving a passenger train. We'll look into the causes, who was held accountable, and whether enough has been done to ensure it never happens again over the past decade in the next hour. But first, what was it like to be there on that day and the many days and months and years that followed? Global National's Quebec correspondent, Mike Armstrong, joins me now with that. Mike, thank you so much. Pleasure. You know, I've been rewatching your reports from that day. And, you know, I remember, I remember finding out about it. I was, I was in Pretoria. I think we were covering Nelson Mandela and, and just, it was international news, the the size of the devastation of what happened. It was just mind boggling. What was it like? What were your memories of that day when you first got, got the call?
2: You know, the call came just after, I guess, 5.30 AM, somewhere around there. And it was somebody we both know, Mark Blanchard, a producer, Mm -hmm. calling to say, there's been a train derailment. Uh, there may be people dead. Pack a bag for a couple of days. So basically, I, I called the cameraman who I work with, and we were on our on our way out there pretty much immediately. It's funny. One of the things that stands out was the driving into town. And we we drove by the hospital, which is one of the first things you see in Lakmagnacik. And I remember thinking and saying to the cameraman, Barry, you know, we're going to have to get people who are injured. And... I guess it would be like four or five hours later, I realized there really weren't that many injured people in lac It was one of these weird situations where you got away and you were fine or you were burned alive. There wasn't really much of an in-between.
0: Yeah. I remember seeing that story that you filed that first day and you spoke to someone who'd taken some video and everyone was just in shell shock, really. I mean, people people couldn't begin to understand what had happened because the explosion was just so absolutely immense and the devastation so huge
2: yeah you know the mayor uh walked out on that first morning on the saturday she walked out on that first morning and let me preface this story by saying she is remembered as a rock okay like she was a rock and she was a rock that people could lean on and she did a great job for the whole next two weeks but that first press conference the little scrum that she gave she started crying and she she literally said like downtown is gone i don't know what we're gonna do and she cried and i remember one of the cameramen saying well that's leadership like just sort of laughing about it like but she had just lost her downtown right fast forward a couple of hours and she gave a rock solid scrum press conference the next day she did it again and the next day she did it again and she did it again and it was she became the rock but that first morning was too traumatic for anybody
0: Everyone, I mean, I'd been to Megancic a a few times over the years just to cover very small little stories when I was, we're based in Sherbrooke and, you know, it's not a big place. Everybody, everybody knew somebody.
2: Oh, you know, we, there was a day and I I still remember if I was there, I could go right to the house and we were just trying to find somebody in town to talk to. It's probably, I don't know, day five or six or something. And we pulled over and uh, I remember we were shooting the people. the the province had sent in social workers and they were wearing like orange vests and so you could see them and they were going door to door literally to help people with the trauma that they'd just been through and we went into one gentleman's backyard and his backyard was right on the water and he was mowing his lawn and we stopped him for a moment very politely and he was very very nice to us and I said look I can ask you a couple of questions He said, no problem I said okay first question I gotta ask you know who did you know and he stopped and he He said, hold on. And he walked over to like a lawn chair and he picked up a Journal de Montréal. He picked up the paper, turned it to whatever page two, which had nothing but pictures of victims. People had died. And he just sat there and pointed to them and said, this was my friend. This was my friend's son. This is my friend's son. This is my cousin's son. This is my... And it was like unbelievable. So it was one of those situations where, you know, I, I tried to pass on my condolences to people. I decided on whatever day two, I said, you know what? Everybody's affected. So I'm just going to pass on my condolences to people. And I did it to the first person, and uh, they made me cry. I did it to the second person, and they made me cry. And the third person was like the fourth of – she was the seventh of seven, and they had lost the middle child. And it wow. was like everywhere, include Walmart. I, I passed on my condolences to a woman in Walmart, and she said, you know, this?" she says, I'm originally from Bosnia. I came here after the war. This is the closest I've ever felt to being back in the war. So it's just everywhere you went, in every direction, there was just awful pain.
0: Yeah. And your story is so reflected that too. You could sort of feel it, you know, both, you know, the shock and the anger. You at one point then are taken, some journalists are taken inside because I think you were kept away from where the, the devastation was. Everyone was for a while. But at one point you're brought in and I'm wondering what it was like to actually see what had happened firsthand.
2: Barry and I were the pool camera. couldn't let all the cameramen go in so they they, one camera gets selected and then usually like a print reporter gets selected a tv reporter and so you go in and you represent all of the media and you share what you see and so we were the first people to really go in and sort of see the devastation yeah it was just wild you could literally see sort of where the oil had spilled and where it had burned but then you could see where it spilled and, and ran off and where it you know, the flames, where it carried the flames with it as it went. And then you could see where it went into the sewers on fire. And and then there were the buildings that were gone. I mean, uh, you know, it was just like somebody had just put, you know, the hand of God had come down and just crushed those buildings right at that ground zero, which was strange to see because we had been there when it was all on fire. And then, you know, authorities built a wall, walls all around it so that you couldn't really see it once it was out, but they, there was... Uh, I can't even imagine, you know, the what they had to do—the the fire department, the coroner's office—and go in and find these charred bodies day after day after day. It's just, as I say, I, I don't know how they do it.
0: And and you mentioned at one point too, and this is this is perhaps because the human toll was so high, but this was an ecological disaster for the town as well and for the surrounding communities.
2: Yeah, it it happened at the mouth of the river, sort of where the lake runs into a river that then runs through all sorts of other communities and th- those communities pull their drinking water. And so it didn't affect the lake as much because of where it happened. It, it sort of flowed out and down the river, but it was awful for the river. And I remember walking sort of a six, seven, 700, 700 meters from where it had happened and you could just see the oil in the, in the river. It was just, it's not something you ever want to see. You just knew it was awful. You could like stick a, a, stick, you know, break, break off a little branch and, and pull it out. And you'd see just oil right there. And I guess the, I mean, the question that comes
0: through so vividly in your early reports is just how, how could this have happened?
2: Uh, You know, I covered, um, I covered the first Christmas. I covered the first anniversary. I covered the day they arrested three men and charged them. I covered the uh, their trial, the, the trial that those three men went through, uh, like all these different over the last 10 years, over and over and over. And the TSB report that came out it had, you know, incredible detail uh, as to what happened. But it just, uh, the other thing that happened when we drove into town was actually we saw a locomotive that was running, parked above the town. And Barry and I got out and looked and said, hello, hello, thinking, assuming someone was in that train. But that was just the standard operating procedure. They would leave trains running and the brakes would be dependent on the running of the engine. But if that engine was shut down, which is what happened with the train, then the brakes would slowly bleed out. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, And to cover the trial and and hear people testify as to what happened and it all comes down to it was that weird fire that was extinguished. It was an engine fire by the NALT fire department. And when you have an engine fire, you have to shut it off because otherwise it's gonna keep drawing fuel to the fire. So that's standard operating procedures. You shut down the engine and they did. They assumed that there were enough handbrakes put on and there were not. Um, So, you know, there were a bunch of things, the TSB report found a bunch of things had one of these, I think it was 18 things not happened. If one of those things hadn't happened, you know, it would not have ended up with all these lives lost.
0: Global National Correspondent Mike Armstrong is with us. We're looking back on uh, 10 years since the Lac-Mégantic tragedy, that horrific explosion and derailment that killed 47 people there, wiped out most of the downtown of that town. Mike, you went back, you were mentioning this, you went back again and again and again. What was the legacy? There was never justice, right? I mean, in, in some senses... People were, I think, wanted someone to blame, but felt like perhaps the wrong people were being blamed or couldn't quite figure out where to put that anger. And it sort of lingered in the community for years after that.
2: Yeah. You know, in in those first days, the gentleman that owned the company, it felt like, you know, if police hadn't been around protecting him as he walked through town, he might have been strung up. Like there was so much anger in the town. Actually, in that at that point, there were lots of signs saying we'll never have trains here again and things like that. And then there was the day that the three men were charged, and I was right there. It was actually a, you know, they didn't have a, a courthouse at that point, so they had built a little courthouse in the town, temporary, and uh, the men were charged there. The trial was 45 minutes away in Sherbrooke when that eventually happened. But that one day when they were first arrested, they were walked from the police cars where, they, you know, they'd been picked up where they lived, and they were brought to this, to Lakme sick. And they were walked from the police cars into this little makeshift courtroom. And the town folks turned out. But one of the things I'm still struck by to this day is the fact that there was no yelling. There was just seething anger, but in silence. Everybody knew that they were angry with these men, but they just let them walk in and then walk out. There, no, there were no tomatoes. There was nothing. Yeah, it, was, it was a little surreal.
0: What's it like now? I mean, I see they've rebuilt things. You know, it's never quite been the same. I, I can tell from just. But if you, when you've gone back, what's what's the legacy of that day in the in the heart of the place that it so destroyed?
2: Well, they ha- they still haven't started construction of the what they call the uh, yeah, the bypass, yeah. That's going to go around the town. We're ten years in, and they still haven't built it. It's supposed to start construction. Supposed to start this fall, but. You know, as soon as you build something somewhere, people are going to be upset. So there have been lots of delays and things like that. But it still sends shivers down people's spine when they hear that train. And the trains run through town to this day. You know, it, it's uh, I was there the first day that they said, OK, the trains are going to have to start up again because everybody understands they are important to the local economy. It's not that like these are passenger trains on their way from one place to another and they're just passing through. No, they're they're they are picking things up. They are running the industry. So people know they need them. But that, that said, they want them moved. They don't want them coming through town anymore.
0: 10 years, though, for you, when you look back at it, um, it must bring back a lot of memories.
2: Yeah, you know, I've, like you, covered a bunch of things that were just awful. I mean, uh, you know, I've been to Haiti four times. I've been to Ukraine three times. I've Afghanistan a couple of times. I, I was in Banda Aceh after the tsunami when in a town that lost 100,000 people. But for some reason, <laughs> the lac Megantic. uh, you know, I've been the Quebec correspondent for Global for 22 years. And so this was home. You know, this was uh, people speaking French. If they spoke English, they spoke English with a French accent. This was the smell of a forest. She knew, like, this mm-hmm. is what a forest smells like. I'm from the eastern townships. You know, my dad was born in Sherbrooke. Uh, this was home. And it was uh, this was a really powerful one. And so I remember after like a few days, after a week, they were like, oh, you know, we'll get you out of there, get you some time off. And I was like, no, no, I'm just here until you don't, you know, until it's not a story. This uh, this is too important to leave. And uh, I still look back at it that way. It was, um, I haven't covered anything like that at home, uh, not since and not after. And I'll tell you why. The other thing that's important. Uh, six months after lac got sick there was another terrible tragedy in Quebec, in Lille verte and it was a fire, and I don't remember the number of people that died, and I apologize, but it was in the 30s, if I remember correctly, but it was a senior's residence. It was awful, it was awful, but it was children that buried their parents, and Lac-Mégantic was parents that buried their children, for the most part, and that's what, t- I'm sorry, I'm having trouble, I'm getting chills thinking about it, that's why Lac-Mégantic was at a base level, it was simply wrong. It's just not the way it's supposed to happen.
0: Yeah. Well, Mike, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on this one. I know I mean, your reporting at the time was, uh, yeah, I, you know, I've been to a lot of those small towns all across this country and like Begonzig, could have been a small town anywhere. Thanks so much. Pleasure. In the last half hour, Global National Quebec Correspondent Mike Armstrong took us back in time to 10 years ago tomorrow and that devastating and deadly explosion and derailment in Lac-Mégantic in Quebec, about 200 kilometres east of Montreal. He spoke about the anger, the demand for answers that dominated the community for months and the years that followed. It was the Transportation Safety Board, as would always be the case, that was dispatched to try to provide answers and recommendations to ensure that it would not happen again. Uh, just two weeks after 47 people were killed with those 72 train cars carrying crude derailed and exploded. The TSB took a rare step of calling for two immediate changes. Here is then-TSB's Donald Ross back on July 20th, 2013.
1: We're asking Transport Canada to review the Canadian rail operating rules and the related railway special instructions to ensure that equipment and trains left unattended are properly secured in order
4: to prevent movement.
0: So that was done just two weeks later, and that was rare because the direct cause it turned out was a train left unattended with too few hand brakes activated uh, to keep it from rolling without the help of the locomotive's air brakes. A fire in the locomotive saw those brakes deactivated. There was nothing left to keep that train from running away, picking up huge speed as it rolled downhill towards Begantique, and the rest, of course, was the tragedy that ensued. Uh, Then-chair Wendy Tedros of the TSB spoke of systemic failures in the final report released a year later.
3: We must do whatever we can to make sure the events of that night, the events that devastated a town and left 47 people dead, never happen again. Which begs the question, who then was in a position to check on this company to make sure safety standards were being met? Who was the guardian of public safety? That is the role of the government, to provide checks and balances Oversight. And yet, this booming industry, where unit trains were shipping more and more oil across Canada and across the border, ran largely unchecked.
0: That was nine years ago now, but here we are. How much has been done since? Did that devastating day truly result in lasting and needed safety changes? Kathy Fox was with the TSB in 2014. She presented the findings to the victims' families, and soon after, she became chair of the TSB and remains in that position today. And she joins me now. Kathy Fox, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. This is, uh, I think this is one of those incidents in our history, certainly in our modern history, that remains very much imprinted on a lot of minds. certainly yours, I know, because you presented the report to the families in 2014. Tell me a bit about just for the Transportation Safety Board, just how big and how impactful a report that was.
5: Well, it, it was a, a huge organizational effort to investigate that accident from the time we first found out about it until the time we released the report and, of course, the follow up afterwards to our recommendations. So it was a, a very big uh, effort to produce a solid, comprehensive investigation report that got to the heart of what happened, why it happened and what needs to change so it will never happen again.
0: You you mentioned you presented it to the families. That must have been difficult, uh, regardless of of what your position is. Trying to present that information in a way that answers the so many the many questions that they had must have been tough.
5: Um, it, it was a it's a tough day for um, the families or loved ones, especially when there have been fatalities, such as the were in Lac-Megantic, anytime the TSB releases its final report. And we certainly uh, hope that the the report gives them some of the answers they're looking for. But yes, it was a very tough day for them in terms of of reliving the experiences and the trauma that they experienced. Uh, we released the report fourteen months, about fourteen months after the accident happened.
0: To take the listeners back in time a bit, just the crux of what it is that you found, what had happened that night, what had gone so catastrophically wrong?
5: Well, this train had been parked on a descending grade for the night. It was carrying uh, 72 cars of of crude oil, and for a variety of technical reasons, which are, are, are complicated to go into in a short matter, and the fact that it wasn't adequately secured, the train ran away uncontrolled down the hill, attained a speed of about 65, 67 miles an hour, derailed in the center of town, spilling 6 million liters of crude oil, which caught fire. And so what we looked at were, of course, the technical reasons, so the fact that there was inadequate securement. And we looked at the structure of the tank cars that were involved, which uh, uh, led to the six thousand liter release. We looked at the emergency response, but then we looked at the broader systemic issues. You know, how could that happen? So we looked at the organization of the company involved. We looked at the oversight provided by Transport Canada. So it was a multifaceted, multi-level uh, investigation into all the factors that contributed to that occurrence. I know that some of what happened
0: that night are things that you'd been warning, that TSB had been warning about in previous reports, uh, in other less, less tragic incidents, but tragic nonetheless. When you looked at the systemic issues, and I know just for listeners to be reminded, TSB doesn't assess blame. This is not what the TSB does. It makes recommendations. You issued some, some, some pretty quick recommendations, uh, in the interim and then in the final report as well to try to improve the way the system would work going forward.
5: So, even before this accident happened the t s b had been warning about uh the use of the dot one eleven tank cars uh, for transportation of dangerous goods. Those were the tank cars that were in use that night as well as um the t the t s b was looking for more physical defenses to prevent uncontrolled movements. So that's when trains roll away on on their own. Those warnings that we'd had recommendations with respect to both uh, had been uh, in place for at least 10 years or more when Lekme happened. As a result of the Lakmigancic investigation, we issued five recommendations, three before the investigation was finalized and a report was issued, and then two at the conclusion. And they covered five broad areas. The first one was the construction standards for tank cars carrying uh, flammable liquids And uh, we recommended stronger um, tank car standards and they've now been implemented. The cars that were in use that night are no longer can no longer be used to transport flammable liquids. The second one was the uh, risk analysis or route planning and analysis by railway companies when they're transporting large uh, amounts of flammable liquids. The third was the emergency response assistance plan so that if there was a a breach, that they would have the resources, the equipment on hand to, uh, to contain the consequences. Those three recommendations, the responses have been assessed and they're fully satisfactory and they're closed. But the two big ones that remain, one has to do with physical defences to prevent uncontrolled movements. And the other one has to do with Transport Canada's oversight of um, railway operator safety management systems. When
0: one look, looks at those two last ones, because those were the, the interim ones were sort of, uh, again, you, ins- you issue interim recommendations. These are sort of the qu- things that need to be done right away. The quick fixes, so to speak, right. although uh, and, and the broader ones are the ones that that are harder to tackle. And here we are 10 years later. Are you saying that that those two big ones have not been fully because uh, I noticed it, that uh, that that uncontrolled movement remains to this day one of your chief concerns uh, for the Transportation Safety Board?
5: So I will just say one thing first about about the the first three. The tank car standards were definitely not a quick fix, but the point right. is the standards were changed relatively quickly with a progressive phase-in period, which is still underway. But going to the two uh outstanding recommendations that you mentioned, yes, I mean, uncontrolled movements are at the heart of what happened in Lakmegansik. And uh, we've had other uncontrolled movements that we've investigated since then, either involving um, cars that were improperly secured. Uh, We had a fatal accident out in British Columbia where that played a role, killed three crew members, or whether they occur in railway yards. And there has been a lot of action taken by Transport Canada, by the railway industry, to improve the rules and the administrative procedures uh, to better secure trains. But what the TSB is looking for are what we call physical defenses. So we're talking about technology, improved braking systems that can uh, prevent uncontrolled movements. With respect to regulatory surveillance, uh, Transport Canada has taken steps to enhance uh, the regulations for safety management systems. They now have, uh, they've issued railway operating certificates, which can be removed from a railway operator if they can't uh, safely uh, manage their, their operations. What we're waiting to see is the impact of their enhanced audits of railway companies. They've changed the way they do that. They've improved the training and the guidance to inspectors. But we're waiting to see, you know, are they actually able now to assess the effectiveness of safety management systems? So those are the two big ones outstanding. Uncontrolled movements, regulatory surveillance, and they're also on our watch list of key safety issues that need to be addressed. Kathy
0: Fox is with us, chair of the Transportation Safety Board. As we look back ten years now uh, to that horrifying night in Lac-Megantic, when forty-seven people were killed after a train derailed, train carrying crude oil derailed, and caused a massive explosion that ripped apart the town. Kathy, when you look when you look now at what we've put in place, I think that the consensus was that day, how could this have happened? And you looked into why that why that was. And then there was a lot of talk, specifically on the political side. I know you can't make these kinds of pronouncements that this would never be allowed to happen again and yet when i look at some of the uh, you know the data around around uncontrolled movement of trains uh, uh, on your own website even in 2019 the number was still kind of trending the wrong way and one wonders whether th- this incident was taken as seriously as it should have been
5: i would say that a lot of action was taken by the regulator by the railway industry post uh, lech to reduce the risk of a of a similar accident occurring again somewhere else With respect to the statistics, yes, the, the number, the sheer number of uncontrolled movements increased up until about 2019, then it decreased for a couple of years, potentially or possibly due to pandemic effects. We still had a a fairly high number last year, but less than it had been in 2019. Whether that's the impact of uh, actions taken by the railway industry or just changes in volume and activity is hard to say. We we don't have a rate, a number per, so that makes it a little harder to compare. But our point is that uncontrolled movements don't happen all that often when you look at the total number of railway movements that happen across this country quite safely every day. But when they do happen, they constitute a significant risk, especially if they happen on the main track, in that they can lead to a derailment, a collision, a loss of life. We feel uh, we'd like to see more action taken to uh, address that issue. We're, we're appreciative everything has been done since LACMA gone sick, but we feel there's a number of key issues that still need to be addressed to get us to where we want to be in terms of reducing the risk of another such tragedy. I know we've seen a
0: lot of coverage over the past few days. We'll continue to see a lot more coverage uh, today and tomorrow around this. When you look at what's being talked about, is there anything in there that you'd like to clear up? Is there anything that, that because it's always been such an emotive one, right, to what happened to LACMA gone sick, is there anything on on the regulatory side that you think needs clearing up?
5: Well, I think two things. First of all, uh, I hear people saying that nothing has changed since Lachmegancic, and, and I don't agree with that. A lot has changed in Lachmegancic, but there are still more that needs to be done. And then the second thing is that uh, there's a perception, I think, that the railways self-regulate, and that's not accurate either. Transport Canada does issue regulations, uh, ministerial directives. Uh, yes, the rules, some of the rules that support those regulations are, are developed by the railways, but they have to be approved by Transport Canada. So Transport Canada has a big role to play in uh, oversight of the safety of railways in this, in this country. So I think those two things, that a lot has been done, but more needs to be done. And uh, Transport Canada has to play a strong and effective role in, in overseeing what the, what the, how the railways manage safety.
0: Yeah, and I guess that you you know this all too well that that bureaucracy moves slowly, right? I mean, even even in the face of something as as horrific as what happened, like, like ten years ago, it takes a while for these changes to work their way through what is a very large bureaucratic system.
5: It it takes time for those changes to take effect, and it takes even more time for us to see the impact of those changes because you know our job is to investigate occurrences, incidents, and accidents, so we only see uh, in those occurrences if the things, the the deficiencies that we pointed out previously have been addressed or not. And that's why sometimes we have to reissue or at least issue new recommendations on on the same topics because we haven't seen the kind of effective action that we've been looking for or what's missing is a sense of urgency about fixing these things. What do you
0: boil? I mean, I know it's it's tough, but what do you boil that down to? Because I think anybody who's seen those images would feel that there was a real urgency to, to fixing these problems. And you and you say, of course, there has been progress since twenty thirteen. But one thinks that that, that would have been, you know, if there, if there could be images that would drive people to change things fast, those would be the images.
5: Yes, uh, absolutely. And and I think, first of all, the the railway system is a complex system and i think you have to approach safety from multiple levels i mean the track infrastructure has to be sound to support the trains that are traveling on them the trains themselves have to be well maintained the crews handling those trains have to be well trained if a train does derail the tank cars carrying uh, particularly dangerous goods have to be strong enough to, to, to really resist breaches or at least the, the, the consequence of breaches have to be um, able to be contained. And then, of course, there's the, the, the way companies manage safety and there's the way Transport Canada oversees that. So it, it's a multifaceted approach that is required ultimately to improve safety and reduce the chances of, of another such tragedy.
0: And just for you, I mean, having been, uh, having ascended to the chair not long after that, uh, just for you, as uh, in terms of where you sit with this organization and in terms of transportation safety in this country broadly, how do you reflect on that day 10 years ago?
5: Well, I certainly will never forget the day and watching the pictures on the news and then hearing uh, from our own staff who deployed to the site uh, what it was like. I, I can tell you from having been involved through the investigation until the release, it, it really was uh, a priority for the organization. It is disappointing to see that 10 years later, we still haven't achieved some of the objectives we set out with our recommendations. And I can only hope that people never forget what happened there and encourage Transport Canada, the railway industry, and all of the associated stakeholders to continue uh, to work on those uh, deficiencies that remain in the system. So we never, no other community ever has to face that situation. Well, Kathy Fox, thank you so much. Thank you.
0: We've been taking a trip back to what happened in Lake Mag lake Megon Sick ten years ago tomorrow, that in devastating derailment and explosion that destroyed part of the city's this town's downtown killing 47 people. And we've spoken to Mike Armstrong, the global national reporter, who was there soon after uh, and talked about his memories of that day and the months and years that followed the impact on the community, the search for justice. Uh, We just spoke with Transportation Safety Board Chair Kathy Fox about the regulatory challenges. To this day, the TSB is not fully satisfied that all the recommendations that they made in the aftermath of that horrific incident have actually been put into place. And that, to me, seems Unbelievable. Unbelievable that the memories of that day, the images of that day, wouldn't have changed, led to drastic change, Uh, that that wouldn't have been a turning point when it came to rail safety in this country. Perhaps it has been. Perhaps things have been done. Kathy Fox mentioned that. But it is slow, perhaps way too slow. Why can't we just change things quickly when something that devastating happens? Um, My next guest has asked himself those same questions for a very long time now. He is a self-professed policy wonk. He was working in Ottawa with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. And he had a direct connection to what happened in Lac-Mégantic, one that he didn't really know about until he discovered that he did. And he set about, at that point, trying to figure out how widespread was this tragedy? Where did things start to fall apart? But let's take you back a bit in time to just how much of it reverberated the devastation like me the loss of life how much it reverberated in the halls of power then prime minister stephen harper toured the site soon after he had this to say
4: you know it looks like a war zone here it, it, the a, a large part of the downtown has been destroyed it's just it is really just terrible there's been loss of life as we all know and there are still many many people missing so there are many people here who are very worried. The mood is quite good, the solidarity of everybody is
0: quite strong, but I know there is going to be waves of emotion over the next few weeks as the extent of this, and this is a very big disaster in human terms, as the extent of this becomes, uh, uh, becomes increasingly obvious former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, soon after the tragedy at Lac-Mégantic 10 years ago tomorrow. And you could hear the emotion in his voice. And you would have thought that at that point there was this rallying around the idea that this could not happen again, that someone would be held accountable for it, and it could not happen again. But in the years that follow, uh, many would dig into the many factors that resulted in that catastrophe. And while much of the blame was shouldered by the frontline rail employees, including engineer Tom Harding, who was charged and later acquitted of criminal negligence causing death in connection with that derailment. Um others were, the other two accused were also acquitted. There was no there was no finding in court. There was no guilt in court. But how far up did this go? My next guest says the tragedy in Begon sick was emblematic of a much much greater events than Those the actions of a few that night. In his book, The Lakbegonsik Rail Disaster, Public Betrayal and Justice Denied, Bruce Campbell says it is instead the story of a rail industry writing its own rules, a booming U.S. oil industry based on fracking needing to move exponentially more crude by rail, and a railway operator cutting corners for profit. It's also about a federal government and bureaucracy ignoring warning signs that a disaster on Canada's railways was becoming more and more likely and that the consequences would be increasingly devastating. In other words, greed fueled the dangerous conditions and those in charge of protecting the people of sick did too little to protect them from the consequences. Campbell spoke to many in May Gonsic for the book, as well as other key players, and looked into the often murky world of transport safety regulation. Now, 10 years later, he too is looking back, both at that day and the years in between, to see if the conditions that combined with such deadly force in 2013 have indeed changed a decade on. And Bruce Campbell, adjunct professor in the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change at York University, author of The lac me Rail Disaster, Public Betrayal, Justice Denied, joins me now. Bruce, thanks so much. Nice to be here, Ben. Despite the circumstances, yeah. I mean, this is just a—it's a really somber anniversary. I think a lot of us will remember back ten years ago to when we first heard, because it was both awesome in that in that purest of ways, and also so terribly tragic.
4: Yeah, I was on holidays and not that far from Lac Megantic when it happened, and it was just shocking. I couldn't believe it was happening in our country and so close. And I had done work on regulation before. And what I saw coming out of it, you know, initially was the kind of blame game. And they were blaming the frontline workers. They were blaming the firefighters. And there were systemic and underlying causes that I knew had to be there. And so I thought, well, I can do some research and I can give a fairly objective perspective on this. It wasn't until I got back to Ottawa that I learned that uh, my colleague at the time had lost three members of her extended family, the two little girls and their mother. Right. Very close to the track. So that obviously it, it changed things in terms of my determination to research and write about this. And while I was at CCPA, I wrote three reports. And then I, 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 I had a fellowship at the University of Ottawa at the law faculty, And then while I was there, I started writing the book, and that came out in 2018. And the French version came out in 2019. And I actually held the launch of the French version of the book at the rebuilt Music Cafe you know, where most of the people died. So many people were that
0: night. Yeah. The lasting impact of it too on that community. I mean, it, it, it tore that community apart in so many ways to think about yeah. it. Uh, think about it now. You, when you went back to look at what happened, you mentioned too, they early on, it was kind of the blame game. Like who left the break off? What was going on? What happened? They were sort of, you know, like everything. And people were looking for someone looking to yeah. point the finger, but you found that systemically in many ways, this was kind of an accident waiting to happen.
4: Yeah. I mean, if, uh, in, in the lead up to this, the boom in in oil by rail, I mean, in 2009, there were 500 tank cars of oil transported by rail in Canada. In 2013, there were 160,000. And to give you a sense, and, you know, one of the things that I, I talk about uh, is and that I write about is the economic austerity and the shrinking of resources to deal with. Uh, with regulation of dangerous goods. You know, in 2009, there was roughly, well, I think it was about 14 tank cars per dangerous goods inspector. And by 2013, there was 4,500 tank cars per inspector. So you can imagine, you know, the difficulty in trying to, you know, inspect and enforce. And, and you know, I also talk about uh, the power of the industry uh, in re- relation to the, the regulator and how that power was entrenched with the, with the shrinking of resources, and so it became, you know, the separation of powers and the tension between the two became more of my, my co-regulation, but was in effect self-regulation. And so, in the lead-up, the industry and their allies in the in, in the oil industry managed to to block uh, essentially. Uh, regulations that would kind of address the danger that was coming. And also, at that time, they also managed to get a change in the rules, which would allow trains to operate uh, with a single crew member. Montreal, Maine, and Atlantic, which is the U.S. shortline rail that was running through uh, Megantic, was one of the first if not the first, to run its trains with a single crew crew member. Right. So in this case, what you
0: have is is an exponential growth in the number of of oil being transported by rail in this country uh, with fewer and fewer guardrails to make sure nothing goes wrong. And the the worst case scenario that we witnessed was Lac-Mégantic. I mean, I, I followed a bit over the years, but no one was really ever held accountable for this, were they?
4: Yeah, well you you would know that the the three frontline workers were tried criminally uh and they were acquitted and I remember going to some of the those uh court hearings and uh, even had a bit of act, interaction with uh, Tom Harding but when you look at um uh executives senior officials uh shareholders directors owners no they didn't there was there was no real liability you know in some cases you know there were small fines paid but uh, no no real liability and and uh, you know in 2015 there was there was a, a civil case that was settled with almost all of the defendants and they including the federal government uh, and they agreed to pay a combined total of 460 million dollars which would uh, help victims families and so forth but there was one uh, one defendant and that was Canadian Pacific and Canadian Pacific rail was the one that was contracted by Irving to carry the oil from North Dakota to the Irving refinery in St. John and they refused to settle and there was delay and delay and finally the the, the court uh, hearing began in just last year, and there was a ruling just at the end of last year. Unfortunately, it went in Canadian Pacific's favor. It's being it's under appeal now, but it it was uh, you know in in favor, and it just it says something about the problems uh, with the law and legal liability that it uh, it it was not able to hold Canadian Pacific liable in any way.
0: Bruce Campbell is an adjunct professor in the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change at York University. His book uh, is called The Lac-Mégantic Rail Disaster, Public Betrayal, Justice Denied. We're talking uh, as we approach the 10th anniversary of that horrific incident in Lac-Mégantic in Quebec, where 72 tank cars loaded with oil uh, exploded, killing 47 people. Uh, One of the worst incidents of its time in more than a century as a rail disaster. Uh, Bruce, 10 years later... I know back then there were many, many people saying this cannot be allowed to ever happen again. Uh,
4: ten years later, where are we at? Well, I mean I mean it's um sad to say the window for a recurrence of a lacmegantic type disaster is still open. And that's not necessarily my comments. That's the comments from the environmental commissioner in the Auditor General's office in his report a couple of years ago. So after it happened, uh, the government was, you know, gung ho. We're going to make sure this doesn't happen. We'll minimize the chances of it happening. You can never totally prevent something, but you can do things to minimize. And it, uh, the first thing it did, it, it prohibited single person train operation, which was, which was Tom Harding. It made uh, commitments to strengthen the tank cars carrying dangerous goods. It assigned speed limits on what were called key routes, uh, where there's heavily populated, and so forth. You know, and stuff like that was done. But I can tell you, the lobbying infrastructure kicked in very quickly, and they did a lot of things to kind of to water down or <laughs> yeah. water down, dilute, delay. And sometimes block and sometimes reverse uh, over time. So yeah, I mean, I just, I mean, I I mentioned uh, the report of the uh, environmental commissioner, but I was actually on the advisory committee to the rail safety audit, which happened in what, 2021. And I, I mean, one of the things I basically said is that the, the oversight regime, which is called safety management system, what they're doing with that, you know, there's not sufficient resources to do enforcement and oversight. And so one of the things the report said is they're, you know, they're checking off regulatory boxes, but they're not really looking at whether that, reg- whether, whether those regulations were, were effective, in lowering the risk. And then the Transportation Safety Board, uh, which has what's called a watch list. So it looks at uh, issues uh, which pose a risk to transportation safety, rail safety. Its latest watch list still has that oversight regime safety management systems on its list as posing a risk. Uh, And when it comes to uncontrolled movement of equipment, which includes runaways, uh, like lac like Mégantic, like in Field, BC, uh, more recently, where three three workers were were killed. Right. Um, it's it's saying it's it's created high risk situations that may have catastrophic consequences. That's a direct quote from that that watch list. So in that report, yeah, it's not just me. It's not just me. You know, uh, it's it's the overseers.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I would for lac Mégantic itself because. You know, I gather things have been rebuilt, but the bypass that was supposed to be put up to try to keep trains further away from the town has not been built. And the impact 10 years later on the community itself, uh, there there
4: still hasn't been. I mean, the impact of
0: that day is still profound.
4: Yeah. I mean, as a legacy of health and economic, uh, environmental issues uh, uh, from that disaster, a lot of us, you know, they tore down a lot of the well the t- town center that wasn't contaminated and even that was controversial uh, how much of it they tore down but it's still you know and they rebuilt some some parts of it over to the side but there's still a big a big field essentially uh where where the the track goes and then you know the sharp corner which is still as sharp as it was and it's still they still you know barrel down at all hours of the day and night. And I've been there, um, and I've been close to the tracks listening to it. And it's, uh, you know, there's, um, there's, there's still that, that, that worry of a derailment. Not so long ago, a CP train that went through Megantic and then into Northern Maine derailed and, sp- and, and, and spilled its contents and, and fire. So, you know, that tension is always there. With the bypass, it was supposed to be a way to, to heal. And it's become, it's become very controversial. You know, it's the track that was chosen. The track that was chosen was the one that CP wanted because CP owns it again. It didn't uh, at the time, but it, but it owns it again. And it, and it's paid for by the, the federal and provincial governments. But yeah, it's become controversial. And, you know, the, some of the people whose land is being expropriated are seen more you know, as, as more recent, uh, victims. So, right.
0: so wrapping it all up 10 years later, it feels like some, some has, something has been done, but, uh, but not much considering, uh, just how devastating that day was and how many vows there were to make sure that an incident like that would not repeat itself.
4: Yeah. And I, I write in my book and my commentaries about countervailing measures to make regulation stronger, to give the regulator more, more resources, uh, and to have more transparency and accountability and replace that sort of partnership relationship with one, which is where where there's a separation of roles, you know, the, the safety regulator, that's its priority is safety. And the, we know what the, the corporation's priority, it's, it's shareholder value. But but that needs to be separated. And of course, you know, the strengthened legal liability regimes, strengthen access to information and wh- whistleblower protections, conflict of interest, because you know, there's I've talked about a revolving door of staff being recruited from the industry to the regulator. And one of my sources said too often they don't take their railway hats off when they come. To the government, to the when they come to the regulator. So, you know, so protections, conflict of interest protections, there's a whole range of things that can be done to to strengthen the ability of the regulator to further safety. And you know, I realized that, you know, given given that relationship, the chances of a, you know, a, a given the power relationship, the, the chances of a real transcendent change in the status quo is uh is is remote but i i i think that's not a reason that's not a reason to give up
0: no and and your personal connection this to this too i gather it was it was nine-year-old bianca and um right. uh, alissa charret right
4: that's right
3: and, and the, and the, mom,
0: and
4: the yeah. mother, Kumi. well bruce yeah. thank you so much for your time
0: on this i appreciate it
4: yeah it's my pleasure ben
0: the health of the short-term rental industry has been a topic of speculation of late. Of course, it was badly hit during the pandemic, places like Air, you know, Airbnb and so on, uh, and it was driven into a frenzied state last week by a single post on social media. Uh, the, cons- the CEO of Reventure Consulting put up a post that he says showed significant declines in revenue per listing for Airbnb properties in 15 U.S. cities, down nearly 50% in places such as Phoenix, Austin, Seattle, or Orla- Orlando. Overall, he said revenues were down 35% in those 15 cities between May of 2022 and May of this year. Now, why this matters is because it would suggest that if a bunch of unit owners are losing money on short-term rentals, that it will lead to a wave of forced selling from Airbnb owners in cities hardest hit. So there's sort of this cascading effect of it, right? But there were no Canadian numbers. And there were a lot of pushback against those numbers as well, with another company saying that while there's been a decline, slight, it's been nowhere near that drastic. But again, what about our country? I went ahead and asked AirDNA, the self-proclaimed leading platform for short-term rental intelligence, uh, to dig up some Canadian numbers for us from some cities, including Toronto and Vancouver, Calgary, Montreal, Victoria, and so on, to let us know what's going on in this country. And joining me now with what they found is Bram Gallagher. He's an economist with AirDNA. Bram, thanks. Thanks for having me, Ben. I mean, there's been a lot of speculation clearly during, at the height of the pandemic, you know, the uh, you know the, the short-term rental market uh, suffered like every other uh, hospitality market did. What have we seen in the past little while? Because if you read the headlines or just sort of
1: scan them now and then, it seems like there's been a bit of a shift. What's going on? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And uh, yeah, there was a time we were just unsure if hospitality as an industry was going to survive. Uh, in 21... We started to see some really bright things happen, and they happened in the short-term rental space first. So they were very, very quick to mobilize, and there was all this pent-up demand. You know, people had their ability to travel sort of taken away from them. They were in quarantine. Uh, It was was a very stressful period. So when things started opening back up a bit in 21, uh, I think people were extremely eager to travel. Hotels still hadn't opened back up fully yet, so short-term rentals were were there to assist with anybody that wanted to, to vacation, and that's what we saw a big explosion in performance in 2021, and continued interest in uh, short-term rentals uh, afterwards as well. So, you know, looking at the you know the demand numbers in in Canada, for uh, uh, example. We regained the demand that we saw in the height, you know, right before the uh, uh, pandemic. You know, we saw the the height of demand maybe in August of 2019. Two and a half million, 2.7 million demand nights. And we we got just, just about almost there in uh, August of last year, so 2022. So uh, the market has almost recovered you know, from that, that big dip. We've had steady recovery since and a lot of interest in new supply as well.
0: And then yet, yet there, there has been, uh, again, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the articles that have been written around this one tweet that sort of showed that demand in the last year, at least, had started to dip a bit, that there was sort of a glut of, of properties, I gather, on the market. Uh, is there, has there been any shift in the last 12 months?
1: Yes, yes, uh, there is. It's it's uh, a similar picture that we've got here in the U.S. Um, that we've seen in Canada, but I wouldn't I wouldn't characterize it as a dip in demand um, at all. I think there's continuing increasing interest in travel, so we've seen the demand go up. But we did have a lot of operators notice over the last year that some unit level was uh, unit level performance was maybe dipping a little bit. So what are we talking about? It's those occupancy levels. And the problem was not necessarily that we didn't have you know increases in demand, but we just had such incredible outpouring of supply. So incredible increases to supply. I had looked up a few of the of the, the cities uh, and just was looking at, you know, what's the sort of available, obviously the available listing growth like over the last year. And then we've got some really, really high numbers in a lot of places. So so for instance, Toronto. Uh, 70% year-over-year growth in available listings. It's 70, 7 zero. Incredible, wow. incredible growth. Even though the demand has been very high, very, very interesting, there's just no way it can keep up with that kind of, of huge surge in supply. So some of the reasons that we saw that happen were that, you know, pandemic interest rates were slashed in an effort to stimulate the economy, and there was a sort of a narrow window there where we had that incredible performance that we had seen in 21 and also very, very low interest rates. And so we saw a lot of people flocking to the space. This yep. has slowed down a little bit since then. You know, thankfully, the Bank of Canada and the U.S. Fed have been raising rates since since March of last year, continue to do so. So that definitely has slowed down the influx of supply. But over the last 12 months, you know, that, that uncontrollable sort of Surge in supplies is where we've seen the occupancies dip. Bram, do you have any any sense of
0: whether these were new listings coming on, uh, to making up some of that seventy percent, or whether these were people getting back into uh, short term rentals after exiting for a while at the height of the pandemic?
1: Theoretically, it could just be people coming back, but you know this market, we see a lot of churn. We see very very dependable churn. People are interested; they might try it for a while. But there's only a small core of people that are, you know, in it full time and have been have been con- continuously operating their business for a, a long stretch of time. So in that way, it's definitely different than the hotel business. So right, the supply is much more
0: mutable. And, and I, I would suspect that in some cases, I don't know how many of these are, you know, individual full apartments that are being listed, but some people must be looking to help pay their mortgages as well by trying to rent out spare rooms or find any extra income they can, if they can do so uh, on a short-term rental uh, site, for instance.
1: Yes. Uh, and and here the interest rates are cutting both ways. On the one hand, it might be more difficult to enter into, you know, the housing market right now to, to acquire new property because of those high interest rates. On the other hand, if you're trying to sell... You're not going to get the price that you were going to get a year ago because the, the mortgage payment is, is taken up by so much interest right now. So you might want to hold on until uh, those interest rates go back down. And presumably they will. You know, I'm not exactly sure what the timeline is, but presumably they'll go back down. And so in the meantime, you're holding on to this property that you want to sell, but you can't. What are you going to do with it? Well, I can get some revenue on the short term rental market.
0: Bram Gallagher is with us this half hour. He's an economist at DNA. We're talking about uh, short-term rentals in this country, specifically Airbnb, but there are others as well. And just a huge increase in supply that seems to be having a bit of a, you know, uh, making the market wobble a little bit, uh, as Bram was mentioning in, in the previous segment, about a 70% increase in Toronto alone between May 2022 and May 2023, up from 9,700 listings to uh, more than 16,000, a big jump. And Bram, are you seeing the same thing in other Canadian markets as well? Toronto, obviously has a lot of condo space, a lot of small units available. Are we seeing the same thing in other big Canadian cities as well, the Vancouver's and so on?
1: Yes. Well, you know, we, well, all of the the, the six Canadian cities that I looked at, they all have declining occupancy, which is to say supply is outpacing demand. However, none of them are quite at the level of, of Toronto. That's that's some of the most um, incredible fast growth that we've seen of any of these large Canadian cities. So for instance, Vancouver their occupancy has only declined by about two point six percent year over year. That's with a very strong thirty nine percent increase in demand, and you know the uh, the available listing is only increasing thirty five point eight percent. So you might you might ask yourself, well, this sounds like the demand is is going is outpacing the the number of listings, and that's that's true. But we still saw a slight decline in occupancy because the people that were listing were listing more nights and, and expanding the season out a little bit. That's and that's that's another trend we've seen over the last year. So you know, that's a, that's a positive story for Vancouver. Their ADR appreciation of about 5% year over year was enough so that their their Revpar, their revenue per available rental was actually positive year over year in May. Right. So prices aren't coming
0: down in other words. In some places they must be. So if you're out there looking for a short-term rental, presumably uh, there are places where there's a lot of supply and you can you can get a deal.
1: Yeah, this uh, that is a good point. So you know, Montreal, the prices are are maintaining a lot of, of pricing power. I mean, the the, the short term rentals are maintaining a lot of pricing power. Vancouver, they are maintaining a lot of pricing power. Even in uh, Toronto, where we have seen some pretty steep occupancy uh, losses, there's still a, a considerable amount of ADR appreciation, about ten percent. Once we move past those three big ones, you know there is a little bit more room, and I think to the to the benefit of the consumer, this increase in supply means there's a lot more options today than you had before. So, Calgary ADRs were just about flat. In Victoria ADRs declined a little bit, about seven percent year over year. I should also point out that, that doesn't capture the uh, the mix difference, and this is probably affecting some right. of the other cities as well. So if we've got a lot more new low-priced entrants into the market, then that could drag down ADR. So, Whenever you see these really big increases in supply, you have to think about the mix when you're looking at eighty. Where that supply is coming from? Yeah, as I was mentioning earlier, people looking to try to add a
0: little bit of income, help with those increasing mortgage rates, if they if they're facing them, maybe looking at renting out individual rooms in their homes and so on. What about for those looking to put short-term rentals on the market? the the The, the market seems to have become there, there's a bit of a culling of the herd going on. I would suspect here too that some things that may have rented quite easily. Two three years ago or three years ago, four years ago at this point might be having more trouble now
1: yeah, there was that joke that you know you could pitch a tent in your backyard in 2021 and somebody would rent it out but right. you know that that's the the other side of that incredible supply boost is that there are a lot more options in addition to that hotels now are much more fully open. international travel is is uh, is relaxed a little bit compared to even where it was a year ago. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of uh, of different options and a lot of different choices that a potential traveler can think about.
0: What will you be looking for then? I mean, we see a lot more supply online. Prices seem to be maintaining. Uh, do you think th- this will obviously shift a bit? Where do you where do you see it going without having to ask you to pull out a crystal ball you don't have? Uh, where do you think this is going to go in the next 6-12 months?
1: We certainly have seen supply uh, slow. We've, we've seen uh, evidence of that. The, the, the new listings are, are lower now than they have been in about 12 months. And that that bodes well for current operators, as I think this summer um, Canada as a whole is going to achieve the pre pandemic levels of short term rentals. It's got, and I think from there it's going to have a more measured supply growth, um, because we're not just getting back to where we were. You know, we're, we're, we'll be entering new new territory. So I think we're going to see some more measured supply growth. Those rates are going to go down eventually, but it looks like inflation is, you know, core inflation is a bit stickier than a lot of these central banks would would like. It's not just in the U.S. and Canada. It's happening worldwide. So that adds a lot of uh, inertia to that. So rates could stay high for a little bit longer. And that, that, again, is going to have that sort of slowing effect on on turnover in the housing market. And, you know, I think that bodes well for, for unit level performance. Now, for the consumers... There is a lot of interest in travel, and that has been the one thing that has uh, really impressed me over the last year is that people really want to travel. We had so many predictions about recessions, downturns, cash crunches, credit crunches, but people, they keep coming out. They keep making reservations. They're prioritizing this. They're not buying necessarily goods. You're probably not on the housing market. You know, we know that, that housing is is uh, the market is slowed down you know a, a whole lot so you know where are people spending their money it's on these experiences on on travel there's been a little more interest in value but there is uh, another side uh, of you know the the short-term rental in in that it's being able to expand the reach uh and into different places that people can travel so you know canada has got just unmatched natural beauty it's got tons of rugged wilderness and a lot of these places don't have hotels right they're, they're never going to have a hotel there's just not that's the whole point is it's remote uh, but what you can do is, is have short-term rentals we've seen a lot of growth in rural uh rural areas and small cities um so you know that's that's uh, a, a, another facet uh, and that is a continually i think important part of the mix Bram, thank you so much for your time on this i appreciate it well thank you ben
0: Given how hot it is, we figured this is a good day. And there are still heat warnings in effect for tomorrow for many places, including the Northwest Territories and New Brunswick. It's going to get mighty hot in the Maritimes or in New Brunswick, at least tomorrow. Uh, And I was mentioning just how hot it was in places like Toronto. The Humidex was up in the high 30s, I think, today. So, of course, when it heats up, what do people do? They head to the water.
6: Yeah, we're looking forward to it because I think it's really hot. We're going to go in the water, get a little cooler. There
0: you go. That was quick, right? <laughs> That's about as quick as it gets. It's one of those typical weather stories where, you know, you send your reporter out to walk around and talk to people about what they're going to do. So this, these folks were down near Lake Ontario in Toronto today. But, of course, you know, this time of year, always a good reminder, since it's getting warmer, lakes are warming up, everyone's getting ready, people are on holiday, obviously a good time for some refreshers about water safety, right? Both boating and swimming, How to make sure you protect yourself. Uh, and some sobering new stats that show safety is being ignored more than you hope, particularly by younger Canadians. Stephanie Bacalar is with the Life Saving Society of Ontario and she joins me now. Stephanie, thank you so much.
6: Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Well, this is that time of year. I mean, this sort of goes without saying, but it's always good to have a reminder, right? Lakes are warming up. A lot more Canadians have access to places they can go swimming. So maybe it's a reminder of the golden rules that you always uh, advocate for every year as a reminder to people out there before they hop in the water. Just some stuff to remember, I guess
6: yeah absolutely so one thing we want people to try to do as much as they can is actually swim in lifeguard supervised settings so less than one percent of drownings happen where the lifeguards are so find yourself a beach or a pool that has lifeguards available and that's where we want you to swim you know sometimes that's not going to be possible and that's okay too and we still want you to make sure you're taking your life jackets with you um, especially for the children and anyone who can't swim. It's never a bad idea to bring one for everyone who's going, just in case you have to swim out over your head, throw that life jacket on in case of an emergency. And one thing I really want people not to do is bring their floaties to the beach. Really? Why,
0: Why is that? Because they're so popular, right? Why is that?
6: Okay, so yes, they are super popular, and they're really cool right now, right? They're unicorns. They're, I saw one that was a giant beaver for Canada Day that someone had, had in yeah. a photo. Like, They're really fun, you know, they look great, but they are not designed for waves, and they're not designed for weather. Um, and what happens, especially with um, people who can't swim and, and aren't aware of the water as well, they get in those things, and they are out over their heads in the middle of the lake faster than they can blink an eye, and they cannot get back. And those things can also deflate, which is a big problem, right? Like you can't rely on that as a sort of safety device or a flotation device.
0: So a false sense of security with them in some senses.
6: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right.
0: There are some other things that, uh, I mean, one of the things I always remember about jumping in the lake for the first time is that if you haven't done any swimming in seven, eight, nine months, eight months, you tend to forget what you can and cannot do, right? I mean, you kind of need to ease back into it a little bit. I think people know that uh, inherently, but still uh, it's worth reminding.
6: It's funny how many people I speak to that say, oh, I thought I could swim better than I can or farther than I can, or, oh, I used to be able to swim. Now I'm really tired really quickly. It's kind of like an if you don't use it, you lose it sort of skill. Um, it's the same thing as like going for a run. It's a physical activity, right? So if you haven't been doing it a lot, you shouldn't expect to have the same level of stamina that you had before. So you should definitely be very cautious. And aware, and it's it's okay to stay in the shallow part of the lake or in the shallow end of the pool. There's no shame in that.
0: Yeah. You don't have to do the cross ocean, the cross, the cross Lake Ontario swim or anything along those lines. <laughs> I guess this year, I mean, I, I think last year too, but a lot of people will be back in much bigger groups than they may have been a couple of years ago. Uh, and that's always worth reminding as well, that when you have a lot of people, especially kids, a lot of kids in a pool or a lot of kids in the lake at the same time, you kind of need someone there to make sure that someone's watching at all times, sort of a designated, there's not a lifeguard, someone designated to act in that role.
6: Absolutely. We kind of call it the person that's on guard. And I often take on that role. I have two young children, a two and a four year old. And I went to a really fun pool party for Canada Day. And, you know, great pool, really big pool. Lots of people around all have kids now. We're all of that age. We all have small children. So it's a little bit chaotic. And we really have to be clear with each other who is supervising right now and which kids are you supervising. So I'll say to one friend, I will watch your two and my two, I'm in the water, I'm here, three can swim well, one's in a life jacket, I'm okay with these ones. And then other parents are assigning other people to watch theirs. But if you do need to step away, or look away, even to put sunscreen on or something like that, just have someone else take over that role for you have someone else come and supervise. Because you really, with drowning being so fast and so silent, you can't take your eyes off those kids even for a second.
0: And you mentioned that for adults as well, that uh, sometimes it's always nice, of course, at the end of the day to go jump in the lake. And I think people do that without hesitation and probably no problem, no, no issues ensue. Uh, But it's always better to have someone on the dock watching out for you, right, if you're going in alone?
6: Yeah. So one of the things that people I don't think are aware of is actually how dangerous it is to swim alone. So what we've seen in our drowning data is that the people who are drowning alone are actually older adults. So, you know, 50, 65 plus those age groups are at very high risk. About 75 percent of over 75 year olds who drowned were actually alone when they were swimming.
0: So it's just you, you run into some sort of a medical issue or something or other and, and you can, you have no one there to, to call out to, right? That therein lies the problem.
6: Yeah, typically it is some sort of medical issue coupled with no one around to help you and then that results in a drowning. So we do want people to be very careful. We do use the phrase for kids, like always swim with a buddy. That has to apply no matter your age and also no matter your skill. Like myself as a lifeguard and as someone who has swam for a long time, I still wouldn't go in the water alone.
0: And then there's the obvious ones such as drinking. I mean, summertime is always, there's usually drinks somewhere around the pool or around the lake, something to watch out for, especially when it's this hot as it has, as it is uh, in the East today and, and has been for a couple of days now.
6: I mean, obviously with boating, it is the same as drinking and driving, but people have a very different attitude towards it. The attitude towards this oh, I'm out on the lake, I'm in the boat, I'm going to have a beer, I'm going to pack the cooler. It's very dangerous. Lakes can be very unpredictable in terms of weather, in terms of rocks, in terms of other boaters and what they might be doing, right? So you really do need to take all of the same precautions you would take for driving. Think of your life jacket as a seatbelt, leave any sort of like alcohol or drugs or anything that's going to make you impaired, leave all that stuff at home. Great, you get back to the cottage, have your drinks. Like I'm not, I'm not telling anyone not to enjoy their weekends, of course, but just not when you're on the water.
0: Are you seeing trends that, that we should know about? Are there is there anything happening out there that uh, that we should be aware of these days?
6: Well, we did just release our um, drowning report for 2023. Um, So that's got some new stats and data that I've just been digging into. And there are some things that have increased that I was a bit surprised by. So for instance, this year, we're seeing a lot more boating accidents where no one people aren't wearing life jackets. So that number has increased a full percent. Um, So it was about 87 or so previously. Now it's about 88. So people are in a boat accident and 88% are not wearing a life jacket. That's that step. many, that
0: That's many, I mean, we've people. been talking about this for decades. <laughs> really. Yeah. A lot
6: of people whose lives could have been saved.
0: That's yeah. an amazing number. That, I mean, I suppose it goes without saying that people not wearing life jackets are at incredibly increased risk of, of drowning, but, but still that seems like an awfully, that seems like a very high number.
6: And it's crazy high with young adults. Like it's 93% with the 15 to 34 year olds. That high, wow. yeah. The other shocking thing that I found from this drowning report, which I just got my hot little hands on Mm -hmm. and and was very excited about, children under the age of five, previous years, it was 92% of drownings were when supervision was absent or distracted. So their parents looked away and there was a drowning, that type of situation. That was 92%. This drowning report is reporting 96% that is alarming to me you took your eyes off the prize and a tragedy happened we need to watch our children
0: 96% so so almost so almost as you mentioned earlier those children being supervised closely there are almost no fatalities absolutely Yes. We've talked a lot about uh, about lifeguarding of late. I know this is something that, uh, that your organization is intimately involved in uh, and how difficult it's been to find lifeguards and how much that training dropped uh, at the height of the pandemic. Where are we at now? Uh, how, how likely are we to find enough lifeguards that we can enjoy the water in our areas? Because sometimes that's the problem. There are no lifeguards, so people go in anyway, right?
6: Yeah. So th- the pandemic really did a number on any sort of aquatic instructors, lifeguards, if you don't have pools open, you can't learn to swim, you can't run those courses. So it's it's been a challenge, that's for sure. Um, we're really proud of the um, program delivery partners that we work with in terms of our, like your local pools and, and beaches and whatnot, because they've worked really hard to run as many courses as possible, get as many of those, you know, teenagers trained, but also they're training adults, um, some retired folks or stay-at-home parents, things like that. So they've kind of gone out of the realm of looking at just teenagers and they're really looking broad. And I think more people are realizing that lifeguarding, isn't just a part-time job, it can be a career. There are so many options when it comes to lifeguarding and running recreation facilities and all those types of things. So we're seeing more longevity in that as well. At this point, our numbers are bouncing back. So we're quite happy with where the numbers are and um, how many lifeguards we're certifying. And then, as you know, the 15-year-olds are now legally allowed to work in Canada, and we had a number of those already certified, ready to work. So that's definitely a positive impact, and I think we'll continue to have a positive impact as time goes on.
0: Right. And I know that the organization broadly recommended a national safe swimming recovery program. So I guess that's what we're seeing the impacts of is just casting a much wider net to try to find those who are either already certified and maybe need to be lured back in or those who we need to certify quickly.
6: Yeah. And I think, you know, I think everything kind of goes through ups and downs. And there was the time where lifeguarding was a really sought after job and everyone was really keen to do it. And then there's some people who maybe. Realize it is a lot of work. <laughs> it's it's not easy to get your certifications. And for good reason, right? People's lives are in your hands. So it shouldn't be easy to get these certifications. It's very comprehensive. But the benefits that go along with working as a lifeguard are immeasurable. I mean, you get those customer service skills, you get problem solving skills, you learn judgment, you get to practice all of these these things that you might not practice at a fast food restaurant or something like that. So it really does make a big difference and it looks great on a resume.
0: And how does one get involved these days? I forget my ignorance today. Obviously they can go to your website, right?
6: Yeah, absolutely. So lifesavingsociety.com, but typically the path you learn to swim, um, you start out with our bronze medallion course, which is a course that we recommend for anyone at any age, because this is the first course that teaches you how to save yourself and others. So, this is great, even just for parents to have, right? Like, so that when they're out on the open water, they know how to do different types of rescues um, and they're kind of prepared for anything. So, we recommend that for everyone. After medallion, you go into bronze cross, you learn a bit more, you kind of become, become an assistant lifeguard, and then you can take your national lifeguard. And your swim instructors as well, which is really fantastic. And then from there, the sky's the limit. You can be the one that teaches the lifeguarding courses. You can teach the swim instructors and it just, it keeps going. So there's a lot of opportunity.
0: I'm sure a lot of people will be heading to the lake these days, especially in the East, given given the heat wave. So I guess as a final word of advice, uh, wear a life jacket if you're out, don't be distracted uh, and and just, you know, treat the water with respect.
6: Absolutely. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Ben.